Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Grand Rounds. This is a very special one. This is the Comites Lecture, which is always one that I, uh, that I look forward to every, every single year. Uh, Dr. Comites has been a, an amazing mentor to me and to everyone here. And today we have an amazing potpourri of, of cardiologists that are coming in properly distanced and uh, gown and masked um, and using Purell. So we, we are following our rules. And, uh, and you will see that they will use that uh, proper guidance for, you know, for this Grand Rounds. Uh, Dr. Leopold, who has been here in Connecticut, uh, Connecticut Children's for a number of years, and formerly at Hartford Hospital in Cardiology, will be introducing the Comites Lecture. Before that, uh, I do want to recognize our Mach 10 uh, winner for this year, uh, for this quarter. And it, this one is a little different because it was not physically present in the Grand Rounds Auditorium. It was more uh, really uh, electronically. So where you're sitting right now in, uh, in your living room or the bathroom or wherever you are right now, that, you know, thank you for logging in. And this individual is a former member of the Department of Pediatrics. So Dr. Carlson, Andrew Carlson, congratulations. Uh, you are the winner of the Mach 10 Award for this, uh, this quarter. Uh, we'll give you something electronic so you can order online. I think that's what it is. I'm not sure exactly what you will be getting, but it will be something electronic. So congratulations to you. So to introduce the Comites Lecture, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Leopold uh, just very shortly uh, to, to come and introduce uh, the speaker. And uh, Hank is somebody that I've known for many, many years since I was here as a resident in, uh, in 1988 when he came back from his fellowship. And uh, Hank uh, had trained at Columbia, was formerly a resident here in pediatrics at the University of Connecticut and Hartford Hospital. So he knows Dr. Kamaitis quite well for a long time, and, and Hank was the former division chief uh, in cardiology, has, been a, an, has had an amazing career, and has somebody who has been contributing tremendously for many, many years as uh, sort of the, uh, the father next to Dr. Kamaitis of, of the division. So it's proper that that Hank will introduce the lecture. It's going to be, uh, uh, we're going to run very quickly through all these presentations, and we unfortunately will not have time for questions at the end, but we will have time for Dr. Kamaitis to say a few words uh, to complete the Grand Rounds. Please do send us your questions, and we'll make sure that they get responded electronically. So with no further ado, I'm going to put my, bat, my mask back on. I'm going to do a little Purell, and I'm going to ask Dr. Leopold to come in and begin the lecture. Good morning. I'm going to take my mask off, use my Perel. <clears throat> Next slide. I don't think any of us have uh, any disclosures. Um, so I'm honored to introduce Leon and the Leon Comites Lecture. Um, <clears throat> probably many of you don't know that I first met Leon many years ago. It's almost 40 years. I believe it was 1981. I, as a fourth year medical student from Syracuse, um, uh, came as an away elective, and the reason I did was, like most things, my wife. My wife was an intern at Hartford Hospital, I was a newlywed, and it was nice to be together. Um, next slide. Um, no disclosure, sorry, out of order. Next slide. <clears throat> so this is the Grand Rounds, we have multiple speakers here. Next slide. Uh, the obligate picture of, oops, went a little fast there, obligate picture of Leon. Um, Leon as a clinician, as a mentor to me um, for many, many years. Next slide. Um, trying to put Leon in perspective is impossible to do in um, 10 minutes. I have 10 minutes to do, uh, speak about Leon as well as to do an introduction to catheterization. So let me be quick. Um, Leon's retired, uh, started pediatric cardiology here in 
Connecticut and Hartford in 1967, but retired around the time the Children's Hospital opened in 96, 97. Um, obviously, he didn't retire like I was hanging out over the weekend, doing nothing, social distancing, didn't even get out of my sweatpants probably. Uh, Leon retired and continued to work. Um, he is known for his work in the American Heart Association with PALS, um, but he has uh, felt a unique responsibility to tell the history of uh, Eastern Europe before World War II and during World War II from his own perspective. He published this book, Stranger in Many Lands, um, to document what was going on. I would encourage everyone to read through it. It's an amazing history. It certainly puts our childhoods in a different perspective and puts the history of Eastern Europe and World War II in a different perspective and very personal. Next slide. Um, Leon left Eastern Europe, went through uh, Great Britain and on to uh, the USA, ending up in New York City. He went to high school in New York, went to Yeshiva University, and then um, is one of the uh, members of the first class of the Albert Einstein School of Medicine. Um, I can't point him out, but there he is in the audience. And even for me, who went to med school in the 70s and 80s, uh, we were not that formal. <laughs> Next slide. <clears throat> so Leon is always uh, going to be remembered in partnership with uh, advanced life support. Um, <clears throat> when resuscitation science and resuscitation began, like everything in pediatrics, there was no attention placed to the pediatric patient for resuscitation. It was all about adults um, and heart attack victims. He saw a tremendous gap in uh, research and knowledge and standards and uh, formed a group of people to fill the gap and start the science. Um, <clears throat> and pediatric advanced life support and PALS is now a standard. Everybody does it. All of our first responders learn it. Um, but it was really that cadre of people way back when who wrote the standards. Next slide, please. And Linda Kwan, um, one of those people, summarized this and named uh, Leon the gentle giant. Being a tall person, it certainly fit. Um, Leon was uniquely able to always bring people together to the table to work out differences of opinions and and get people to a consensus um, and form those standards so um, everyone remembers him behind the scenes working together and getting people together next slide um, <clears throat> heart block and lupus for us is sort of a knee-jerk response but it wasn't always that um, leon early on in his career saw a number of people um, uh, babies with heart block and then noticed that a lot of moms had lupus. Together with the other people on the paper, um, they wrote this seminal article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1977 as a clinical description of congenital heart block associated with lupus. Now clearly we know more and we know the mechanisms, but this was the beginning of our knowledge base. Next slide. Um, just to change uh, focus now, what does Leon mean to me? What have I learned from Leon? Um, how has he been my mentor? Um, <clears throat> from that first day that I walked in as a lost medical student in 1981, I was um, <clears throat> greeted by Jean and Leon and all my fears about where I was, what I was supposed to do, how I was supposed to act got taken care of. This is a picture of Jean and Leon, the team. They've always been together. Um, 
and Felice is there at one of our uh, meetings at her house, um, and not just to embarrass uh, Felice. Next slide. Um, here's Dan and Leon, uh, obviously the dynamic duo, as we would call them way back when. And um, next slide, I want to embarrass myself too. So here I am in the late 80s, probably, with Karen. Karen, one of our members, cath lab nurse forever. I've still talked to her on the phone occasionally. One of our international patients and Leon all together. Um, so what have I really learned? I, I've learned a lot of pediatrics. I've learned a lot of pediatric cardiology from Leon. But I've learned that we need to take care of patients. We need to take care of our families. Whenever people come to the office, they were treated like one of our family entering our house. In this time of social distancing, um, it's a little more difficult with telemedicine, um, but certainly doable. And I would encourage everyone to um, make the effort. It's really worth it. Um, now transitioning to catheterization real quickly. Next slide. Um, what do we do in the cath lab? What is interventional catheterization? Um, if I had to summarize real quickly, we open things that were closed and need to be opened. We close things that are open and need to be closed. Um, so the first real interventional cath was uh, the balloon atrial septostomy by Raskin. After have to remember this was done in the 60s. We didn't have echo. Um, cyanotic babies were brought to the hospital, um, exam, electrocardiogram, and x-ray was our only diagnostic tools, and then we went to the cath lab. Um, I didn't go. I wasn't doing it back then, thank God. Um, after that, we noticed that kids with transposition needed an atrial opening. Remember, we didn't do the arterial switch within a week. The mustard or sending, the atrial switch was done months later. So surgical atrial septectomies were done, and, and it was a big deal to go from the cath lab to the OR and without bypass and all this stuff, and kids didn't do so well. So imagine someone in 1962, 63, and 64 saying, I can do that in the cath lab. Um, can we see if this will play? Oh, nope, that's all right. We'll skip that. So balloon septostomy is such that, oh, there we go. Um, put the catheter into the left atrium, the balloon is inflated in the heart, basically filling the left atrium, and this won't play, so it's okay. And with a real pull, you pull that balloon and tear the atrial septum, which gives rise to the oldest joke in pediatric cardiology, that a balloon septostomy is only as good as the jerk at the end of the catheter. So once we were able to open certain things, we then tried to open other things. Next slide. Um, these won't play either, probably. So critical pulmonary stenosis or severe pulmonary valve stenosis um, <clears throat> surgically had its issues um, and people decided in the 70s and 80s, why don't we try to open the valve in the cath lab instead? So the catheters across the pulmonary valve and instead of pulling a balloon across, while it's across the valve, the balloon is inflated and as it stretches, it tears the valve with radial force as that balloon inflates 360 degrees and then deflates rapidly so that you can get cardiac output again. Next slide. So if we can do that across the pulmonary valve, maybe we can do that across the aortic valve. This won't play either, but now you see the balloon open, that sausage look with the valve keeping the balloon incompletely inflated. We continue to inflate the balloon and tear that valve open. Next slide. So now maybe we can close things. And here's a cartoon 
on the left of the patent ductus, the angiogram on the right. Um, next slide, we will put a catheter just like crossing the pulmonary valve for pulmonary stenosis, but now we'll put that whole long catheter across the ductus to the descending aorta and introduce through that uh, long catheter it basically a plug. Um, the plug gets elongated and fits through the catheter, but when it's released and the catheter is withdrawn, the plug forms. Next slide, and now that won't play either, so never mind. So the, the plug is left in the ductus. We take a picture to make sure we like the position. It's not impinging on anything else, and if you like it, you buy it. In other words, we unscrew the delivery cable and the device will stay in the ductus. One more thing real quickly, I'm about done. We can close the atrial septum, and this sort of cartoon will show you how that's done. I've always thought of it as an Oreo cookie. You have two wafers. Our chocolate wafers have to be on each side of the hole, and the cream is closing the hole in the middle. It ha the wafers have to be bigger than the hole so that it's wedged in there and can't prolapse through either way. Uh, similarly, once you like the position and our echo people by TE tell us it's in good position, then we release it and it, hopefully it will stay. So um, there's a few more slides. In the interest of time, I'm going to skip them. So go ahead to Brooke. Uh, this is what the devices look like. Uh, just go right ahead. Um, Brooke is our um, head of the Echo Lab at Connecticut Children's with a special interest in fetal cardiac ultrasound. Um, Brooke has special extra training in advanced imaging from Children's of Philadelphia. Um, and thank you um, for all your attention. Okay, you can go to my slide. Okay, and so for cardiac ultrasound, we have three major modalities um, of echocardiography, so fetal, transthoracic, and transesophageal. Um, and I think the best example of how we use all three of the, these modalities in concert together um, are in patients with critical congenital heart disease, so babies that are diagnosed with uh, critical congenital heart disease. So nowadays, we're able to make the diagnosis uh, much more often in utero, and um, that gives us the advantage of being able to counsel the family um, and make uh, decisions about delivery planning. We then can perform the transthoracic echocardiogram after the baby is delivered, um, and that helps us make decisions about treatment um, as well as perform surgical planning. And lastly, the transesophageal comes in, uh, transesophageal echocardiogram um, is beneficial for preoperative evaluation as well as the postoperative assessment. Next slide. So for fetal echocardiography, um, the transducer is placed on the maternal abdomen to assess the fetal heart. Um, again, this provides us with early diagnosis of congenital heart disease. So many of these referrals come in from our obst obstetricians and maternal fetal medicine colleagues, um, typically um, around 18 weeks gestation when um, the initial level two ultrasound is performed. Uh, we get referrals for a variety of reasons. Um, sometimes it's for screening when a patient may be at high risk due to a family history or other reasons. Um, and other times it's because they suspect that there's um, a cardiac anomaly and they want us to uh, further evaluate. So once we make the diagnosis of congenital heart disease, um, that enables us to, um, to counsel the families. And you can see a picture there down below of our counseling room where we bring in the families. Um, and, that, and we draw pictures and talk about um, 
first the normal heart and then the um, type of heart cardiac defect that the child has. This also gives us the opportunity to talk about um, the treatment plan, um, the delivery plan, um, and, um, and the surgical plan as well. Um, and we can talk about the expected short-term and long-term prognosis for the child. Um, it also allows us to have plenty of time to coordinate care for the delivery. So um, we're able to plan So if the patient needs delivery at a tertiary care facility. Um, we can determine if the baby needs early um, umbilical lines and, and prostaglandin um, infusions to maintain ductal patency if it's a ductal dependent lesion. Um, and it gives us time to um, be on the same page with our cardiac team so that everyone is aware of the delivery and um, can come early to perform the consultation um, and perform imaging after delivery as well. Um, and then we can also have early access to cardiac catheterization and surgery if needed. You can go to the next slide. Uh, once the baby's delivered, uh, we perform an echocardiogram right on the patient's chest wall with a transthoracic echocardiogram. Um, there are some limitations to the fetal, um, fetal echocardiograms uh, for a variety of reasons. In fetal life, um, oxygen is provided by the placenta, and once the baby's delivered, um, the baby will breathe on its own, um, and so the, there's a transition that takes place. Um, so we perform an assessment um, right, you know, right after the baby's delivered um, to um, either make the initial diagnosis or confirm the anatomy, um, as well as the function and physiology. Uh, of course, we can do this now that the baby um, is right in front of us in conjunction with the clinical assessment, so with our physical exam, our vital signs, labs, and things like that. Um, and the transthoracic echocardiogram is what we use um, in our surgical planning to present to our, um, to our surgical team. And we all get together as cardiologists and surgeons to, um, to discuss the plan moving forward. Um, in addition to that planning, we also often will use transthoracic echo in the cath lab, for example, to guide a balloon atrial septostomy um, that Dr. Leopold had, had talked about. Um, and of course, has many other uses um, in our hospital as well. You go to the next slide. Um, and so once our babies um, undergo surgery, uh, we will perform a transesophageal echocardiogram in the operating room. That's when a probe is placed in the esophagus um, after induction of anesthesia and intubation. This gives us time to do a preoperative assessment to take another look at the anatomy um, and to also find our landmarks for the postoperative evaluation. Postoperatively, um, after the surgeons perform their, um, the operation, uh, after, bypass, uh, after the patient's taken off bypass, but before we close the chest, we then have the opportunity to look at, um, at the repair with blood flowing through the structures. And if there's any residual defects or something that the surgeon needs to address again, um, there's the opportunity to return to bypass um, to repair those residual defects. It also gives us important information for the postoperative care of the patient uh, so we can assess the cardiac function and RV pressure and things like that that could influence um, the post-operative care in the intensive care unit. Um, of course, transesophageal echo also has many other uses. We use it in the cath lab, again, to guide procedures um, and look for things like thrombus for formation and vegetations in other patients. Let me go to the next slide. Here at Connecticut Children's, we're certified in our echo lab by the Intersocietal Accreditation Commission. Uh, last year, we performed 5,800 studies, which was the most we've done yet. Um, the other thing we're really proud of is that uh, we're part of the School of Pediatric Cardiac Ultrasound through the Hoffman Heart School of Cardiac Ultrasound. Um, so we help train the next generation of pediatric sonographers, and many um, have actually gone on to work within our, our own team. 
And lastly, um, for ECHO in the COVID era, we have made some changes um, in this uh, era for uh, precautions to protect uh, both patients and staff. Um, so for fetal ECHOs, we uh, mostly are putting our clinics now in the Glastonbury office to minimize contact exposure for our pregnant patients. Uh, for transthoracic echo, where we have very judicious use of echocardiography um, and have targeted our studies as well. So especially if you have a COVID positive patient um, or uh, uh, someone under investigation, um, our sonographers will use the PPE, will we'll bring the machine into the room with the patient so the pa we're not moving the patient around the hospital. Um, and we have um, plans for how we are draping and decontaminating all the echo machines, as you can see over here on the right. Um, in terms of transesophageal echocardiography, we perform terminal cleaning of the TEE machines with the OR equipment after every use as well. All right, and with that, we'll move on to our next speaker, um, uh, Dr. Olga Toro-Salazar, um, who is uh, an associate professor of pediatrics um, and director of um, non-invasive imaging. Um, she's had additional training in cardiac MRI and has um, a special interest in cardiac oncology, and she's going to talk to us about cardiac MRI. Thank you, Brooke, for that nice introduction. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity of sharing our experience in cardiac magnetic resonance imaging at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Next slide. So we use the goals of CMR and congenital heart disease are to characterize the uh, location and anatomic severity of the primary lesion. For instance, if you have a patient with pulmonary valve insufficiency, we want to look at the severity of that. Um, we want to look at the functional consequence of that primary lesion. Uh, for instance, right ventricular volume overload in those patients or identify any associated conditions such as branch pulmonary artery stenosis. Next slide. This is a slide representing the number of patients seen by cardiac diagnosis. And the important thing to see is that we can use, use it widely in the assessment of pediatric and adult patients with congenital heart disease uh, for preoperative and interventional planning as well as for uh, restratification in our patients who have genetic or acquired cardiomyopathy. Next slide. And for that, we use some multiple uh, sequences. Uh, we can use the flow on the left-hand side to measure shunts. Uh, in evaluation of patients who have atrial or, sept or ventricular septal defects, we can measure regurgitant fractions. In the middle, we can look at the cardiac and the vascular anatomy with gadolinium magnetic resonance angiography. Uh, we can look at the CNA images. You can see uh, we can obtain multiple images uh, that are played in a CNA loop for assessment of left ventricular uh, volumes and function. You can see how beautifully we can assess the structure of the myocardium, the left and the right ventricle on the right upper uh, hand of your screen. Uh, we can, beyond function, we can look at regional myocardial deformation. This is a measurement of strain, how each fiber of the myocardium is acting to contribute to the global function. A hallmark of uh, magnetic resonance imaging is uh, tissue characterization on the lower panel. You can see a patient that has gadolinium enhancement in an area of infarct. This is extremely important for the evaluation of uh, patients who have uh, ischemic heart disease. Um, in addition to that, we're able to look at the myocardial characteristics uh, of the cells. Uh, in the middle scan, you can see patient, a patient with a transfusion-dependent cardiomyopathy. We can actually measure the amount of iron in the myocardium, and we can use certain thresholds to determine timing for chelation in these patients. And to the right, you can see uh, that we can also look at coronary uh, anatomy. Many of our congenital patients have associated abnormalities in the coronary arteries that are ex very important in the planning, surgical planning of those patients. Next slide. 
Here's a patient with a double aortic arch. This is an, a formal vascular ring. On the left-hand side, you can see the right arch, uh, and then on the, on the other side, you can see the small left arch with the atretic segment. You can see that those vascular structures are encroaching into that airway, uh, and we use this routinely for the uh, evaluation and differentiation of all these vascular rings in patients. Next slide. This is an image, this is a bright blood imaging. Uh, we can use that for assessment of, of function. Um, you can look at the, uh, at the aortic valve morphology, you can look at the aortic root, sinotubular junction and ascending aorta in patients who have, for instance, genetic aortopathies, such as uh, Marfan syndrome, low states. Uh, so this is extremely helpful for that reason. Next slide. We also use it for assessment of left ventricular function, and for that we use multiple slices uh, that we can obtain in a stack. We measure the endocardium and the epicardium. In this example, we have a patient who has tetralogy of a low, has wide open pulmonary valve insufficiency, has right ventricular volume overload, and we can use those thresholds of volumes to determine timing for intervention. Next slide. This is a slide that represents myocardial deformation, uh, and uh, what we can see is the different fibers in the myocardium. On the left-hand side, you can see the short axis of the heart. You can see that the areas in yellow represent areas that are not uh, moving, that are not contracting. The areas in green represent hypokinetic areas, and the areas in, in blue represent normal kinetic. Segmental strain abnormalities are currently used in the, as early biomarkers in patients in cardiotoxicity, uh, and we have at Connecticut Children's Medical Center have been pioneers in the development of this imaging biomarker. Next slide. Uh, there are many quantitative uh, flow imaging uh, applications, such as a measurement of regurgitant fraction in patients with bicuspid aortic valve, pulmonary valve insufficiency, stroke volume differentials that can be used for assessment of shunts, non-invasive assessment or exclusion of cardiac lecturized shunts with measurement of what we call QPQS, which is differential measurements of flow, both in the pulmonary artery and in the aorta. Differential pulmonary blood flow that can be used for the assessment of branch pulmonary artery stenosis that indicate the, the uh, placement of a stent. And finally, vena cava and pulmonary venous flow in patients with single ventricle that allow us quantification of collateral circulation. This is an example of 4D flow. Uh, we can obtain multiple flows uh, uh, in different areas of the heart. And uh, this is a new sequence that we're uh, acquiring at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. We're actively working with Siemens in the development of this new advancement. Next slide. This is an example of uh, gadolinium enhanced angiography. We can look at the vascular anatomy as well as the cardiac anatomy. You can see in these patients with coartation of the aorta, there is a discrete narrowing that occurs distal to the left subclavian artery. You can also see the associated collateral uh, uh, that are being formed due to that significant obstruction. Next slide. Uh, myomaps are very helpful uh, in the evaluation of pathology of the myocardium. We can actually uh, measure the myocardial characteristics, the relaxation time. That is the time that takes that proton to go back in alignment with the magnetic field. On the left-hand side, we can actually measure with T1 maps the presence of microscopic fibrosis. In the middle slice, we can measure uh, uh, evidence of myocardial edema. Uh, this would be very helpful in patients, for instance, with myocarditis. And on the right-hand side is an example of a T2 map that is measured, uh, obtained to measure the content of iron in the uh, myocardium that will indicate the chelation uh, for that patient. Next slide. Gadolinium-based agents can also help us determine myocardial scars. 
uh, both macroscopic and microscopic. Uh, on the left-hand side, you see a cartoon of the myocardium. You can see the myocardial cells. You can see the extracellular matrix. And in a normal patient, you have a 20% ECV or extracellular volume. But you can see that in patients with microscopic fibrosis, which is an adverse remodeling of the heart. Go back one, please. Uh, you can see that, that there is an increase in the extracellular volume, in this case up to, to uh, 30%. This ca can happen in patients, for instance, with tetralogy of Fallot or aortic stenosis. Uh, we can also do evaluation of patients who have infiltrative cardiomyopathies, uh, for instance, patients who have sarcoidosis and amyloidosis. So you see that the extracellular volume is expanding in these patients, and we uh, routinely get referrals from our hospital for evaluation of those patients. And finally, you can actually look at replacement fibrosis. This is a patient that has had an infarct. You can see it in the in this middle slide that you have an area of uh, uptake of gadolinium. Uh, and it's very helpful for the evaluation of viability in this group of patients. And uh, finally, uh, next slide, we can look at our coronary arteries. We can look at the proximal cores. And, uh, and this is very helpful since many patients with congenital heart disease have associated uh, abnormalities in the coronary arteries. And I have the pleasure to in introduce to Joseph Corvilla. Uh, he is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Connecticut. We're very blessed to have him now be part of our team. He's an expert in pulmonary hypertension, and he has been instrumental in the development of a pulmonary hypertension program at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Thank you. Thank you, Olga, for that introduction. Um, so we'll spend uh, the next few minutes talking about pulmonary hypertension here at Connecticut Children's. I will say that it's really an honor to be able to participate in this lecture to honor uh, Dr. Comedes, who's had such a tremendous uh, contribution to all of pediatrics. Next slide, please. The patients with pulmonary hypertension and patient families really require a tremendous amount of energy and effort um, and investment, um, and really requires a team rather than any one individual. And uh, currently, uh, besides myself and Megan Clark, who is our clinical nurse uh, specialist, we also have a, yes, a, a large team within the division, outside of the division, and, and I've been very overwhelmed by the amount of support that uh, we found here at Connecticut Children's. Um, Dr. Shalindra Upadhyay, uh, who you'll hear in a few minutes, uh, is uh, part of our team as well, who is ACHD, but also had specific training in pulmonary hypertension. Um, uh, in addition, we have an inpatient team of cardiologists who cover our inpatient patients 24-7. Uh, uh, we've also had tremendous support from non-invasive imaging, where we're now we actually have pulmonary hypertension-specific uh, echocardiograms for surveillance, in addition to MRI capability. Um, uh, we have our interventional cardiology team as well as cardiac surgery uh, available for those patients who, in addition to medical therapy, may require interventions such as we heard before, atrial septosomies, although for different reasons, for different purposes, as well as those who make, may, may need cardiac interventions in a, in a repair or a partial repair or other kind of palliative uh, procedures. And additionally, uh, uh, you know, these patients, as you'll hear, hear from soon, um, have a disease that is caused by from a myriad of different etiologies, and therefore we require multidisciplinary assessments and uh, really a team approach. So I've been really pleased to have the support of the NICU, the PICU, pulmonology, rheumatology, as well as ENT, um, who have been really instrumental uh, in creating some of the care pathways we developed uh, over the last several uh, months so that we don't miss patients that may have pulmonary hypertension. Next slide, please. So we'll start off by talking about definitions as, opposed, as uh, defined by the World Health Organization. Uh, the, uh, that is, a, is an exciting time in the world of pulmonary hypertension uh, because the first uh, World Health uh, Symposium was held in 1972. And after having the same definitions for pulmonary hypertension for nearly 50 years, the definition uh, has actually changed just in 2018. 
Um, and also, we are, are now seeing a, a more pediatric-specific and pediatric focus in pulmonary hypertension, which is now getting more recognition. So pulmonary hypertension is uh, defined by a right heart catheterization. Uh, for patients greater than three months, it's defined by a mean pulmonary artery pressure of greater than 20 millimeters of mercury uh, and a pulmonary vascular resistance uh, index of greater than three wood units per meter squared. This is going to take in consideration the pressure and flow um, uh, to assess what the pulmonary, actually pulmonary vascular resistance is, um, and rather than just the mean pressure alone. Uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension takes that a step further and further qualifies, qualifies uh, the definition to now include the pulmonary arterial wedge pressure, which takes into consideration the pressures in the left side of the heart to kind of isolate the pulmonary vascular bed as being the, being the, being the source of the problem. Next slide, please. Um, it's very critical that we discuss the definitions uh, and the different categories of pulmonary hypertension. So as, as I mentioned before, the most recent uh, World Health Symposium uh, for pulmonary hypertension in 2018 um, talked about the various different etiologies. And there's been more and more of a focus now on pediatric uh, uh, a subtype of disease, uh, which is great because now we have more recognition, which will hopefully lead to more FDA-approved drugs for pediatric patients. Um, so if we... Uh, 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 and, the, and the etiologies are actually very important because etiologies define our therapy. And what may be uh, therapy for one subtype of disease may be contraindicated for another subtype of a disease. Um, so it is very important that we do a very thorough evaluation for our patients. So group one patients are patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. This is oftentimes the most discussed and most um, well-recognized uh, form of pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, so you have idiopathic pulmonary hypertension or, or, or in addition to heritable forms, uh, as well as a long list of, uh, of, of other causes. Um, there's been lots of research and lots of expansion in the types of genes that are now identified in, in causing the heritable forms. Um, in our subset of pediatric patients, we have patients who have congenital heart disease um, and as well as PPHN, or persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn, which, have now are, which are new additions to the subtype of disease. Class two is left heart disease, where we have either left ventricular dysfunction or left heart obstruction. Uh, post, uh, congenital post-capillary obstruction is also now recognized uh, as in uh, patients who have cord triatriatum or, or uh, pulmonary venous disease as well, which is a subtype of disease that we see. Group three is uh, by far the most rapidly expanding group of patients uh, in the pediatric subset of patients because now we have patients who are now surviving and at a younger and younger age due to the feats of our neonatology colleagues. Um, and as well um, as them not having underformed lungs, they also have underformed lung vasculature. So developmental lung disease is actually a growing and, uh, growing and expanding field uh, in which we're now identifying more and more patients uh, with pulmonary hypertension. Um, chronic thromboembolic uh, pulmonary hypertension is a rare form of disease that we see in children, but um, there are rare instances when that's also identified. And group five is a miscellaneous category where we don't really have a subset category, but all the rest remain. All the other subtypes kind of fall into this category. There are a few types of pediatric disease that we find in this miscellaneous category, particularly patients with pulmonary atresia and MAPCAs and segmental pulmonary arterial hypertension, as well as those who may have graft-versus-host disease uh, in patients receiving transplants. Next slide, please. Um, so this slide really highlights the impact of medical therapy uh, on, patients on, on patients with pulmonary hypertension. Before modern therapy was available, the NIH studies um, in the 70s and 80s really show that the median survival after diagnosis of pulmonary arterial hypertension was 2.8 years, which is, you know, which should be very startling. The one, three, and five-year survival uh, from the diagnosis of pulmonary arterial hypertension before modern therapies were 68, 48, and 34%. Um, 
therefore, this really defines the need for early identification and early treatment because with prostacyclin therapy and with additional uh, multimodal therapy, the survival has really improved significantly. We know that the one, three, and five-year survival based on the reveal registries are 88, 76, and 63%. So that's nearly a doubling uh, of the survival rate of five years with appropriate therapy. But as you can see, there's still much work that needs to be done. Next slide, please. Um, these are the current uh, um, pharmacological modalities that we actually are, are actively using now. Uh, we have the endothelin pathway, the nitric oxide pathway, and prostaglandin pathways. And uh, here at Connecticut Children's, we offer medical therapy with multiple agents in each of these categories. So we have a really a, a full uh, arsenal of, uh, of medical therapies that we're able to offer our patients here. And early detection, early st in addition to early onset of therapies, really makes the largest impact in these patients. So being able to provide all these, pa all these therapies to patients locally uh, avoids a delay of care, also um, allows uh, convenience, because these patients often require um, frequent visits, frequent phone calls, um, and frequent to and fro uh, from in and out of the hospital. So this really elevates the care that, are, that is able to be provided for these patients. Um, next slide, please. Uh, now, this kind of just also uh, depicts the uh, changes in the outcomes of therapy by this Kaplan-Meier curve. Uh, in patients who have uh, pulmonary hypertension, uh, the early onset and the, uh, the early onset of uh, medical therapy with prostacyclins really makes all the difference in the world um, in their survival and also in their functional capacity as well. Um, so in terms of the current era of COVID-19, uh, patients with pulmonary arterial, arterial hypertension, particularly those who are on medical therapy, probably represent um, the highest risk patients that, that, we, can, uh, that we can expect to have. Uh, you know, uh, so this additional insult of, of this virus would really truly be detrimental and uh, clinically significantly worsen uh, their clinical outcomes and would hasten their mortality. Uh, so you know, prevention, 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 and uh, every measure that we can to keep them healthy and keep them uh, infection-free should be taken. Um, so without further delay, uh, we can go on to our next uh, speaker. This is uh, going to be Ms. Whitney Fairchild. She is our advanced practice nurse practitioner uh, who uh, works and who is part of our Delta Congenital program. She's been, uh, had the uh, privilege of representing Connecticut Children's at multiple national meetings. Um, in addition, is currently taking the lead and uh, being uh, one of our uh, experts in uh, telemedicine, which is becoming very, very handy. Uh, Whitney. Thank you, Dr. Caravilla. Um, so it's a pleasure to be a part of today's Grand, round, grand Rounds in honor of Dr. Kamites and to speak with you a little bit about adult congenital heart disease, or as we call it, ACHD. Next slide, please. Uh, so since the 1940s, there's been tremendous advancements in the care of congenital heart disease that's led to improved survival such as cardiopulmonary bypass in the 1950s, IV prostaglandins in the 1970s, and uh, subsequent advances in surgical corrections and post-op care. This graph depicts the percent survival to 18 years old for those with complex congenital heart disease based on the decade they were born. And as you can see, uh, only 5% of those born with complex congenital heart disease in the year 1940 survived to adulthood. Um, so essentially, it was a fatal diagnosis at that time. If we fast forward to today, the majority of children with congenital heart disease survive to adulthood, and not only do they survive, they thrive. Next slide, please. So thanks to those successes of pediatric cardiology, 
There's a large and growing cohort of adults with congenital heart disease. Um, next, just one click. There are about 20 to 40,000 children with congenital heart disease that graduate into adulthood each year, which leads to about a 5 to 10% increase in the ACHD population annually. In the year 2010, there was um, 1.5 million adults with congenital heart disease living in the U.S., and obviously that num number has grown um, over the past 10 years. And for many years now, there's actually more adults with congenital heart disease than there are children. So um, if these adults were repaired in childhood, then why are we worried about them? Next, please. So unfortunately, successful repair of congenital heart disease in childhood is not a cure. Most adults with congenital heart disease will suffer long-term issues related to their repair. 50% um, will need a reoperation for ongoing structural issues. One in three will have congestive heart failure, arrhythmia, pulmonary hypertension, or cardiac cath intervention. And adult cardiologists who are experts in acquired heart disease are not, um, they don't have a lot of exposure with congenital heart disease. Uh, and adults with complex congenital heart disease may need different management strategies for things like arrhythmia, heart failure, and valve disease, um, as opposed to what would be appropriate for adults with acquired heart disease. Uh, for example, in an adult that has had a single ventricle palliation, um, whose systemic veins don't connect to the heart anymore, doing something like a pacemaker and ablation um, may be challenging and require non-conventional means. So adult congenital heart disease is a unique subspecialty that was born out of pediatric cardiology. Next, please. Referral to specialized ACHD centers um, with teams that have extensive experience and expertise caring for this unique population does result in significant mortality reduction. This data comes out of um, Canada's international health or national health system. As you can see, those who were referred to specialized centers, as depicted by the black line, had significant mortality benefits over those who did not receive specialized care, as depicted by the dotted line. And to um, continue our discussion, I'm going to introduce Dr. Felice Heller, um, Assistant Professor of Cardiology, and she's actually the founder and co-director of our Adult Congenital Heart Disease Program. Okay, we're working? Great. Um, thank you, Whitney, for um, starting off our discussion on adult congenital heart disease. It is indeed a pleasure to, um, to be here to present today. So it's clear from everything Whitney just told us that we need centers of excellence in order to provide good care to this particular patient population. And uh, I thought it would be helpful to discuss the journey of our adult congenital program here at Connecticut Children's. Next slide.
We're good? All right. So uh, the journey of our adult congenital program here at Connecticut Children's begins back in 1997, thanks to Dr. Kamites. Uh, that, that was the year that Dr. Kamites retired and I joined the program, but he had been here and developed such a solid foundation. Um, he had been here for 30 years, so when I inherited the bulk of his patients, many of them were already grown up. And that was a problem for me because I had no training or experience in older patients with congenital heart disease. So I embarked on a journey of self-education. I started attending the national meetings. And at that point, it was really a very niche specialty. Uh, by 2003, we were on the map. In other words, we were recognized by the Adult Congenital Heart Association as being a, uh, a center of care. Now, this was, at the time, self-reported. So anyone could hang up a shingle and say, hey, we take care of these patients and encourage patients to come. Um, but it developed, um, it, we continued to grow, and part of my mission was to develop an educational program for the adult cardiology fellows in the area who are also going to be encountering some of these older patients. So I developed a um, full curriculum that has been very successful and still continues to this day. And then our next major milestone in October of 2013, Dr. Upadier uh, joined our team. We recruited him here to be the head of our adult congenital program. And that was a unique um, coup because Dr. Upadier is both uh, fellowship trained in adult congenital heart disease at Boston Children's, and he has electrophysiology training. So we were able to, to now provide full service care, including ablations and ICDs. And we no longer had to send patients out with very complex um, cardiac needs. So we were doing everything in-house. Uh, in 2015 was the next milestone, and that was uh, board certification for adult congenital heart disease. This was the first year board certification was offered, and it was newly recognized as an official subspecialty within the American Board of Internal Medicine. And um, Shay and I became uh, two of the first 197 board-certified providers in the country. Next slide. So this is the core of our adult congenital team, which we call the CTAC service, uh, Connecticut Adult Congenital Heart Service. There's the two of us board certified physicians, plus Whitney, who's our fabulous nurse practitioner, and Felicia Tam is our um, wonderful nurse who has befriended all of our complex patients and has uh, been speaking to them weekly and keeping them out of heart failure. Uh, so in addition to the four of us, it really does take a village, and we're very dependent on our, the support from our imaging people in MRI and ECHO. We have had tremendous support from Dr. Leopold, who has lots of experience with older patients. We have had um, great um, support from the inpatient side of things, run by um, the head of our team there is Dr. Golden. And um, in addition, we partner with Hartford Hospital with their maternal fetal medicine program to help take care of our patients who become pregnant. And we partner with the heart failure and transplant service there um, to take care of our patients as they age. So um, with all of these pieces in place, we now had a full service program and we applied for and uh, underwent a very rigorous review process for accreditation to become a comprehensive care center. And we received our accreditation in 2018, which we are very proud of. We are one of only 35 accredited such programs in the country and the only one in Connecticut. Um, next slide. So in addition to just taking good care of our patients, we are also trying to contribute to the advancement of knowledge in our field. Uh, next click. So these are some of the um, abstracts that have been presented that we have developed. There are things about, uh, we have a 
pregnancy registry, and we're trying to define uh, the risk factors for both the mom and the baby. Uh, we have um, been studying um, risk factors, obesity, hypertension, smoking in our single ventricle patients. We had an interest, very interesting um, finding of a marked increase in prevalence of infective endocarditis in our adult patients who have both uh, transvenous pacemakers and uh, uh, pulmonary valve replacement, and the risk of endocarditis in that population was markedly higher than with either device alone. Next. Um, we do some case reports. Next. Uh, we've had studies in the, in the EP lab um, looking to reduce uh, radiation exposure. And then lastly, next. Um, and one more. We are um, just hot off the press, have enrolled in an international multicenter study trying to look at uh, COVID in the ACHD population. This is thought to be a high-risk population, but how it affects the congenital heart disease uh, patients is completely uh, unknown and undescribed, so hopefully we'll be able to contribute to that. Um, and we also have a nursing study going on looking at self-efficacy and self-management. So. Um, with that, next slide. Just in summary, I want to um, say that congenital heart disease is a problem across the lifespan. Next click. So these infants that we see in our NICU that are very ill, next. They become the healthy toddlers that are thriving in your office, next. And they become the very successful young adults, and next. The older adults who have ongoing needs for congenital heart care. Uh, as they get older, they develop later complications. And I just really want to emphasize that um, care for this population is a continuum across the ages. So uh, with that as our um, introduction to our congenital heart program, adult congenital heart program, I'd like to introduce the uh, medical director of our division, Dr. Shailendra Upadhyay, who's going to be talking about COVID and the heart. And Dr. Upadhyay is an associate professor of pediatrics, and he has advanced training in adult congenital heart disease and electrophysiology. Um, thank you, Felice, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, it's truly uh, a pleasure and honor to be a part of this wonderful group with uh, such amazing skills and uh, wonderful personalities. Uh, I just want to say that our division is, is a gift of uh, Dr. Kamaitis that we continue to harbor and, and try and grow it. Uh, and uh, it, it's just uh, such a privilege to be here and uh, speak uh, on, uh, on behalf of the team uh, for this lecture. Uh, next slide, please. So, uh, you know, COVID is uh, very uh, prevalent. Uh, we are all uh, uh, looking at all the complications and all the issues that come up with it. And of course, it involves the heart too. Uh, and when it involves the heart, the problem may be uh, more than uh, where we would have started. Uh, so we have been looking at acute cardiac injury in COVID-19 uh, infections. And uh, some definitions have come up. There's no clear or consensus definition. But initially, before we started to look at uh, cardiac enzymes, if people saw an abnormal EKG, or an abnormal uh, echocardiogram, that's when they would think that uh, there's uh, acute cardiac injury. Uh, more recently, though, if you see a positive troponin level above the 99th percentile is, is where uh, you would say we, you have acute cardiac injury. Uh, next slide, please. Now, the incidence of acute cardiac injury in uh, COVID patients is as much as uh, 20%. 
And uh, why is it important? It's important because if you have uh, cardiac injury, then uh, the likelihood of mortality is much higher. It's at, at least three times higher than uh, without having a cardiac injury uh, to die from, uh, from COVID. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, what's the pathophysiology of cardiac injury in COVID-19 patients? Uh, there are many um, hypotheses that have been put forward. We don't have, uh, we don't know what the exact uh, or the real mechanism is, but the proposed uh, mechanisms include a direct uh, injury uh, of the myocardium by uh, viral invasion, uh, a condition referred to as myocarditis. Uh, you can have acute coronary syndrome uh, and demand ischemia. Um, you know, it's, uh, we don't know the exact details on uh, what frequency would you uh, develop acute uh, cardiac injury-related myocardial infarction. Uh, but what's known is patients who have influenza have six-fold higher risk of developing myocardial infarction uh, if they get infected. Uh, it may be related to stress cardiomyopathy, a condition called Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, which is uh, a result of uh, high levels of catecholamines. And you can have myocardial suppression in the setting of profound inflammatory response uh, or cytokine storm. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, it's a busy looking slide, but it, it just tells us that there are three basic mechanisms where the cardiac involvement could happen. Uh, it could be myocardial infarction, uh, uh, which can be from uh, uh, you know, the state and pre-existing coronary artery disease, or it can be a heart failure, which can be uh, from myocarditis, or again, uh, could be from uh, coronary ischemia. And you can have arrhythmias. Uh, next slide, please. As much as 17% of the patients uh, who were uh, hospitalized, uh, you know, particularly if they were sick, uh, they were noted to have some form of arrhythmia. And as much as 6% of the patients in one of the studies demonstrated that they can have ventricular arrhythmias. Uh, if you have an ICU admission, your likelihood of getting uh, a bad arrhythmia was much higher. Next slide, please. Uh, so the time course and uh, prognostic implication of uh, acute cardiac injury. So, you know, we check the troponins as a standard. Uh, most institutions would ch check troponins on patients upon admission, and they will follow the trends. The troponins tend to rise after about 14 days. Uh, or if you are sicker, you're intubated, the likelihood of uh, troponin increase is even higher. Uh, if you uh, have uh, acute cardiac injury, uh, then the likelihood of uh, dying, as I mentioned, was much higher. And what was also seen was... Uh, as much as 60% of the, uh, the patients who died had evidence of acute cardiac injury versus the survivors where it was only 1%. Uh, in patients who were in the ICU, as much as 22% uh, had acute cardiac injury versus patients who did not require management in the ICU. Next slide, please. Uh, there are many uh, uh, treatments and therapies being looked at. Uh, these could be anti-inflammatory medications to antivirals, uh, and I don't want to indulge into any expertise in, in saying what works or what does not work. I'll leave this to experts like Dr. Juan Salazar. Um, but you know, what, we have to be careful about certain medications that we use to treat COVID. Next slide, please. So, uh, you know, uh, one of the popular medications is using chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, uh, and sometimes uh, in combination with azithromycin, we have to be mindful that uh, while uh, there may or may not be benefits to these medications, uh, they could certainly cause some harm. And the, the biggest harm is QTC prolongation, and we recommend that every patient um, who, uh, who undergoes uh, treatment with these medications uh, get a baseline EKG. And there's certain scores that we can use, something called a Tisdale score, where we can, we can put risk factors and see what would be the risk of QTC prolongation in this, uh, this patient. Uh, now, having said that, it is still being used as we don't have many um, known or advanced therapies. Uh, so what do we do in these situations? Next slide, please. 
So most institutions have some protocols, and uh, you know uh, it, this is but uh, uh, small fonts. But uh, basically, if someone has a baseline EKG of more than 500 milliseconds, the likelihood of having bad arrhythmias is quite high, and, and these medications may best be avoided. Uh, if you, the QTC interval is between 470 and 500 milliseconds, uh, you can risk stratify them. Uh, and you know if you think the the, the medicine is really going to help, you want to make sure the electrolytes are corrected uh, and any other underlying issues that could cause further arrhythmia risk uh, are taken care of. And if it's less than 470, you can certainly go ahead and use uh, these medications, uh, but you have to be mindful and make sure you follow up with the EKGs at regular intervals uh, and uh, be watchful for arrhythmias. And these patients should be on telemetry. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, the other thing that has been uh, talk of the town is uh, the ACE inhibitors in the setting of uh, uh, COVID infection. Uh, as we know, the COVID virus, the way it attaches to the, to the uh, human cells is with using the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 uh, receptor. That's how it gains entry. And when it enters, it kind of uh, you know, occupies all of these uh, the cells. Uh, in the process of doing so, uh, a regular angiotensin 2, which converts into angiotensin 1, uh, is, is inhibited because, because the, ACE in, uh, the receptors are overwhelmed. And as a result of that, you have increased uh, angiotensin 2, which causes acute lung injury and causes leaky capillaries and increases the, the, lung, uh, the lung and all the, uh, the manifestations of COVID that we see uh, causing uh, hypoxia. Uh, there's a theoretical risk, risk that because uh, ACE inhibitors and ARPs may be blocking ACE, uh, and in patients who are already on these, there may be uh, on an overexpression of these receptors that there may be some harmful effects. Um, it's not proven while studies are underway, and there may be there's some uh, uh, data or suggestions coming out that DARPs may actually be beneficial in these conditions too. Uh, as of now, the, re the recommendations from ACC and AHA are that uh, we do not stop these medications. If the, if the patients need them, we, we rather continue them. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, on that note, I want to thank everyone. Our division is amazing, and there's uh, lots of us. Uh, it's a uh, true pleasure and uh, fun to be uh, with these group of uh, team members every day. Thank you. Thank you, Shay, and uh, uh, really an amazing group of people. And I can assure you we have appropriately distanced them, and uh, so they're, they're safe. That's, that's important. Uh, so again, uh, I want to recognize Dr. Kamides for the work that he has done. You can see all your children here now uh, doing some wonderful things. And I believe we're trying to connect to uh, Dr. Kamides. Uh, Nicole is uh, trying to do that. He is not here. He's appropriately uh, sequestered in, uh, in his home, uh, as he should. Um, and trying to connect them to say a few words, and then we'll finish, and then we'll answer questions electronically. Is he on? Uh, Dr. Kamides, we can hear you. Wonderful. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you so very, very much, uh, both for the lecture to Connecticut Children's, and particularly to all of you who spoke, and uh, the many of you that I'm looking at uh, the picture of now who didn't speak. Uh, it's amazing to see the growth of a division uh, in which I was alone for a number of years and then joined by Dan Diana and Hank Leopold. It's very strange uh, to uh, do this at a distance, obviously. I'd love to be there in person and to give all of you a hug and to tell you how gratified I am with the growth in knowledge, the growth in numbers, the growth in the field. Uh, which has taken place. Uh, just to put it in perspective, uh, I remember extremely well 
the first time I heard Bill Rashkind at an American Heart Association meeting, I think it was in Atlantic City, uh, describe uh, for the first time a balloon septostomy. Uh, it was an absolutely amazing experience. And uh, I heard him describe it. I spoke to him afterwards, and he gave me a small clip of the, uh, uh, of the um, uh, film which he took uh, of it. And I used that film clip for many years afterwards, as long as I was teaching. In the second year uh, of medical school, when we taught congenital heart disease, because when we talked about balloon septostomy, I thought it was important to pay tribute to Bill Rashkind, who had the vision to develop this for the first time and to show him doing it rather than my doing it. Uh, I came back and shortly after I came back, I got a call of a cyanotic baby in the uh, nursery. Uh, baby had transposition and never having done it before and with my heart uh, stopping almost, I went in and I pulled the down thing and it worked. Uh, and in fact, uh, that baby is now uh, one of your adult patients, uh, lives in Connecticut, has a wife and I believe two children uh, and is doing well. Uh, and this was a phenomenal thing for us because uh, up until that time, uh, transposition of the great arteries uh, was basically we would go to parents and tell them uh, we had nothing to offer and all of these babies would die. And now we could get them at least to the age of two or three or three and a half, uh, very cyanotic, but nevertheless, we could get them to that age uh, and they could then have the mustard switch uh, procedure, which was the first one done. So to see all of these children now, so many children grow up to become adults and uh, to see all of you uh, doing so much, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and to appreciate so much what you did for me today and what you're doing every day for the children and our patients. And to also say that what gives me greatest pleasure of all is that you continue to uh, have the policy in the department, which I feel as you're talking about it, that you remember that there is a child and a family uh, around that heart and that you're not only fixated on the heart, but on the entire child and the entire family. So thank you very, very much. Thank you, Leon. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here, uh, at least in, by voice, uh, but your heart is certainly felt here by, by everyone. Uh, so again, uh, thank you everyone for joining this fantastic Grand Rounds in honor of Dr. Komaitis. And we'll see you again uh, a week from today on Tuesday to continue our journey. Thank you, everyone. Send your questions. We'll be happy to answer them. Thank you to all the participants. Bye-bye.